0: Onto the scripture, we're going to be talking about Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 22. Uh, If you'd like to have it open as we talk, now's the time to open it because I'm just going to summarize what I'm going to say at the start uh, while you open it up. We're going to talk about three things that Paul talks about in this particular scripture. First of all, he talks about a fractured and divided humanity. I love history, so we're going to explore it through the lens of history. Um, I love politics, so we're not going to talk about current politics. We're going to talk about some other politics and we can thank God for that secondly he gives us an explanation of God's peace and reconciliation and how Christ himself became peace and ended the division between us and third God gives us a vision for renewal he gives us a plan and a purpose and he gives us a new society and something to become not just peace but a new purpose too The context for this particular scripture comes at a time when the Jewish people regard themselves as God's holy people. And indeed they are, but thanks to a kind of a nationalist zealousy and a particular reading of scripture, the Jews at the time had ignored references that said that Christ, well they didn't know Christ, but God wanted to deliver the whole world through Israel. They would ignored this. And so now Jews hated Gentiles and arguably Gentiles hated Jews. God is looking to save all people and looking to deliver all people, but the Jews had forgotten. So let's read. I'm going to read from up here uh, so I can read with you guys. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were called Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at a time when you were separated from Christ, Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of a promise, without hope and without God in the world. So we're not going to talk in detail about circumcision. But circumcision was a sign of a promise of God for the people of Israel. It was a commandment given to Abraham to say that you guys are special. You guys are my people, and throughout the generations, all your family members are going to be my family members, too. It was reinforced in the law of Moses, but often in Israel's history, it was forgotten about. We read in the Bible sometimes that people suddenly remembered that maybe they should be circumcised. And adults and lots of people had it done at once. And in the the time leading up to Christ's birth, new religious zeal had swept across Israel. Israel kind of went through a bit of a religious revival and then went a step further. There is now a zealousy that said that the circumcised were the promised people of God and everyone who was not was worthless. Paul sums it up really nicely, doesn't he? By talking about the attitude of the Jews and the reality for the Gentiles, that's 99% of us, had no hope and were without God in the world. And I want you to stick with me here because we're talking about Jews and Gentiles and for a lot of you this issue is resolved, isn't it? I don't know our ethnic uh, breakup, but I I would bet 99.9% of us here are Gentiles. So how is this relevant to us? Stick with me, because understanding this division will help us understand other divisions in the church and other divisions in our hearts. Okay? Thank you. There are modern examples of the same attitude of division, and I want to paint a picture that this is a really human thing to do, and that this is a thing we all do, and this is a thing that history has done over and over again. As part of my work, I had the privilege to go to South Africa uh, with the Bible Society at the start of this month, and so I'm going to draw a lot from that particular story. Many of you will know, um, I didn't know much about it because I was born in 1992, which means that the political issues in uh, South Africa were not resolved, but apartheid had ended in 94. So I'm going to talk about apartheid. Are you excited? Um, you might be able to tell by how tanned I am. I've been spending a week in 40-degree heat thinking all about this preach. But for those who don't know, in South Africa, from World War II to 1994, there was a political ideology called apartheid. And what that meant is they had decided that black people and white people could not live together. That if either one had a chance to thrive, they both must be separated from one another. It was an evil and broken ideology that didn't end for over 50 years. What it led led to was black people and white people segregated in all spheres of society. For 50 years, black people were banned from voting, from certain jobs and from living in certain places. White people and the government at the time, although not all were complicit, would cruelly destroy homes, communities and towns in order to keep people away, in order to divide their nation. White people, although they were in a massive minority, owned the land, politics and power. And although this isn't a perfect picture of what it was like in Israel, this is a perfect picture of this kind of racial segregation that existed in the first century, that Paul is coming against and that Paul is saying, God has ended. And don't think that the Gentiles weren't also disliking the Jews. They were also oppressing and disliking them too. Let's read Ephesians 13 to 15. And Paul mentions here a dividing wall. Uh, one translation summarizes calling it a wall of hostility. And I'm going to take a left swing here and start to talk about one of my favorite topics in history walls. Not the sausages, not the ice cream, the actual walls. Walls have been constructed since the dawn of civilization to make divisions. Walls were first built around cities to make people feel safe, although a byproduct of this is it selects which group of people are worth saving and which people aren't. If you happen to live in the countryside far from a wall when the enemy comes, what's gonna happen? So it creates a divide. It makes one group of people feel safe from another. And I'm gonna talk now a bit of a more modern example now, slightly more uh, modern than the dawn of civilization. Uh, We're gonna play a quick game of Guess Who. So I want you to guess who I'm talking about here. There's a man who wanted to build a wall. <laughs> he did it because he was scared of migration and attacks. The wall was thought of as impractical. You might be getting it I'm thinking about now. And he had an interesting lack of hair. Does anyone want to tell me who I'm talking about? Donald Trump? Donald Trump? No. I'm talking about King Shoe Glue. <laughs> 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 of a... Uh, From 2029 BC. (laughs) He was king of the place that Abraham left from at about the time Abraham left. And he was the first human being, we think, to order the building of a wall to divide a territory and not just a city. The impractical wall he built was hundreds of kilometres long, but it had nothing on either side of it. So eventually people just walked around it. And he was bald, so that's that's that's, that's in it. I want to highlight that this human action of division stretches back across societies and across history, and that these walls are not just metaphorical, but are literal, and they're designed to select a group of people and keep them safe from another. In South Africa, literal, physical, and economic walls were built around black communities to make whites feel safe, in Berlin, a wall was built to keep communists safe from Western ideas and stop them from leaving. When we arrive in Israel, this same human idea of division exists. See, God had given the people a temple. He'd given very exact instructions on how to build this thing because he wanted a place to meet his people. He told them the very height of the things, the very weight of the things, but by the time Jesus was about, a new wall was built. And you can see it here on the very outside It's this one here. It's a a four four, four and a half foot high wall around the temple. And marked on it was stone saying, if you're a Gentile and you cross this line, you will die. Now that wasn't a kind of divine lightning moment. This was a man-made idea and a man-made thought that separated and kicked people out and kept them away from God. And it wasn't God that would strike you down. It were the Jews themselves this is a picture of division where surely it truly matters God's temple the place where we can make God is divided and it's a great picture for what we're talking about but again it's a little hard for us to relate because we're all Gentiles we know how this story ends so I want to bring in another scripture here um That i've deleted <laughs> um, in colossians paul goes on to say that there are no jews nor greeks no circumcised nor uncircumcised no slave nor free no male nor female no civians no barbarians and he says that all these walls and all these divisions that existed in society then were broken down by the work of the cross even in the temple on the next slide We can see that in the very holy of holies, one man could enter to meet God in his glory once a year. On the outside, in the inner court, in the holy place, only priests could go in. That's one genealogy. That's one family of people can get that close to God. Outside of that, you've got men of age of Israel. And outside of that, hanging out at the back, you've got women segregated from the worship of God. And then... Us Gentiles, we're not even in the picture. We're outside of a temple of God. The priests were close but divided. Men were near, women were at the back, and all groups were divided by rules and regulations, economics and power. Paul writes that he himself has become our peace. And that he brought both groups into one by abolishing the dividing wall in his flesh, the enmity which is the law of commandments in ordinances, making the two into one new man. Now this, being, this bit brings a bit of interpretation and a bit of difficulty. So he says uh, he broke down a dividing wall in himself. So Jesus solved this wall. But what is this wall? It's hostility caused by laws and commandments in ordinances. I did a bit of reading around this because you can interpret this in a number of ways. Some people say Paul here is saying that all the laws in the Old Testament and the law has completely been done away with and we don't need to bother with it anymore. And that's the thing that was dividing us. And some people swing the other way and say that it's in fact the Pharisees and their man-made ideas and these man-made thoughts about what divides us from God uh, that has been done away with. But upon reading, I'll give you my suggestion, and if you want to research it yourself, you can. But that Christ said himself, he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and put to death the consequences of breaking it, so that we can have salvation through faith and not law. But he did not do away with any kind of moral standard for us, did he? But also, I would say that this passage and the wall of hostility can refer to both man-made ideas about who can worship what and where and who and whatever. But it also is set in the context of Christ's sacrifice and death and set in the context of the blood of Christ. So the thing that's dividing us here, I've said a long way of saying it, it's sin, isn't it? That the thing that's divided us is the very thing the temple was trying to deal with. Through sacrifices day in and day out, people were trying to atone for sin. And now Christ has removed that. Because Christ's sacrifice wasn't just in Israel on one particular day for one particular set of sins. Christ died and rose again and was sacrificed on the altar of eternity. So that all of us can be covered for all time by one sacrifice which is an amazing promise of God, that the division of sin can no longer exist between us because Christ has done this work. Let's continue in scripture onto our second topic. We've painted a picture of humanity and worship being divided and God being separated from man. But now, Paul has claimed that the answer to all these radical issues that still exist today is that he himself has become the peace we needed. He didn't simply tear down this wall and say, right, now you're all Jews then. It's fine. Nor did he tear down this wall and say, oh, let's get rid of all those Jewish rules. Now you're all Gentiles. Instead, he did something remarkable. He made the two groups into one new group, one new race. We're going to switch back to South Africa now. Because in 1994, a white South African man who had been the police minister was responsible for 40,000 arrests, police brutality, and actions that enforced the segregation of races. He saw his president end apartheid, and although he was happy about it because he wasn't happy with the oppression, he actually still believed in apartheid. He still believed in this fundamental view that we should be separated. And that's all he knew. And one strange crime that he was complicit in was the attempted assassination of a prominent priest who was flying to America and the police got his suitcase, poisoned his underwear and sent him on his way. And he almost died in America, but was fortunately saved. Um, his wife died at the end of apartheid and a friend sent him to Matthew 5. And we're going to hear a little bit of a, about his story on one of my favourite mediums of a podcast. This is a podcast from the History Hour by the BBC World Service. Um just for me, uh, it's obviously going to be a guy speaking with a South African accent. I can understand him. But if you can't, at the end, can you give me a big thumbs down? I and mean, then I'll summarise for you. And if you can, give me a big thumbs up, okay? So this is audio only. So if you want to close your eyes, if you want to stare at a blank screen, you can. Mike. Um, my-
1: His police chief and three others received suspended prison sentences for trying to assassinate him. Arjun Flock's personal search for redemption began the year that black majority rule finally came to South Africa, 1994, when his wife committed suicide. She'd been suffering from depression for many years.
0: That was devastating. I, I, I was angry. And then uh, somebody sent me a note and he said, read Matthew 5 was 23 and 24. And I read the guidelines of Jesus, of the Bible, where he said, if you remember that you have hurt somebody, go and be reconciled. And then I realized, but this is the point where I should start making peace with my brothers and my sisters that I have hurt, who have many things against me.
1: A few years later, Arjun Flock became the highest-ranking minister from the apartheid era to testify before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which sought to heal the wounds of those years by bringing victims and perpetrators face to face. He was granted amnesty for his part in two bombings and in 2006 he publicly apologised for his role in apartheid. That year he also went to see the Reverend Frank Chikani to ask forgiveness and, in a symbol of repentance, to wash his feet.
0: I was scared, and I must say to my shame, I was not scared for the Lord, I was scared about what would people say, my constituents what would they say if they should find out that i washed the feet of a black man in South Africa? But that very moment when he said yes, and I took out this little basin and washed his feet, that was a life-changing moment.
1: Arjun Flock is still asking people for forgiveness for his actions as Minister for Law and Order under apartheid. Amongst those whose feet he's washed are ten women whose sons and husbands were killed.
0: Thank you. Well done. When I first heard that, I was looking to listen to a podcast a bit about the history of apartheid. I wasn't looking for a Christian guy talking about his reconciliation. And upon hearing that, I just burst into tears in the car. Because what an amazing God that he can reconcile people that have done awful, awful things. I'll contend to you that walking into that room, by the way, the guy he washed the feet was the guy who had the poison underpants. That wasn't clear. Walking into that room was a white South African man and a black South African man. But because Christ became peace for them, out walked just South Africans. No longer two races, two separate people, but one group of people, his church. And this is what Christ has done for Jews and Gentiles and done for us and those that we are segregated And divided from. Christ has made it possible for us to have peace with one another. It says he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross by having the cross put to death the enmity. Not because we have no reason to fight anymore. The cross didn't instantly get rid of all injustice, did it? And it didn't eradicate it in the here and now. But because through him, we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. We are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints who are God's household. The peace that Christ gave us, his family, he makes us all brothers and sisters and makes us all sons and daughters of God. What unites us now is more powerful, surely, than any division or wall or hostile act. It's the very blood of Jesus and the family of God that brings us peace now. And what hurt can stand against that? I'm going to speak in a while about our response to this. But I want to share another story that illustrates this point about peace coming, but maybe in our hearts in not yet being there. Hiro Onotonda was a Japanese soldier still fighting World War II in 1974. 30 years after peace had been declared, he was still fighting in the jungle. Peace had arrived. Peace had come. But he hadn't heard about it for a start. And even when he did hear about it, he simply didn't believe him. It wasn't until in 1974 they found his commanding officer, flew him over and got him to ask him to surrender. And this is crazy to imagine that a guy can still fight a war 30 years after peace is over. But isn't that like us? Aren't some of us still fighting? Aren't some of us still divided and have hostility towards one another, even though Christ's work of peace has been completed on the cross? Do you recognise that? We have to strive to succeed. We're in a dog-eat-dog world. Sometimes there's nonsense disagreements between us and sometimes there's real painful divisions over real issues and deep-rooted pains. I think we are still very capable, like the Jews of the first century, of building walls within God's temple that don't belong there. I think this is something that God really wants to deal with in us. I think it's real and it's painful. But if we want to be Christ's church... We need to be reconciled with one another. The man in the clip I played played a part in brutal racism, oppression and attempted murder. And if Christ can become peace for him and change his life in a moment of washing another man's feet, what can he do for us and our differences and our problems in this church today? Remember, just because apartheid was politically over doesn't mean that there aren't people still holding on to those wounds and hurts and that the white people aren't still scared about violent uprising. But no bars held repentance. Healed a whole nation. Walking around South Africa, I ran into someone in the airport and I was just trying to prep this and I said to them, so what do you think about um, this peace and how do you think peace happened in South Africa? And this random employee of the airport went, it's God. It's a miracle. Because it really is. If you want to read some stuff about apartheid and how real hurts were solved through Christ's peace, because if you don't believe it can work, it can. Read about it. Peace is the truth of scripture and the reality of our new condition, but we today, right now, have divisions amongst us. He wasn't free from the pressures of the world. He said himself he feared people's judgment, didn't he? He wasn't afraid of God, he was afraid of his constituents. But Christ gave him the strength to reconcile and make peace. This public period of admission of guilt and asking for forgiveness was a miracle. And one nation turned from horror, not from running from a past, ignoring it ever happened but from confronting it with grace. (laughs) I think this might be difficult for us, isn't it? Don't we prefer to run from our hurts, run from the people we've hurt? But can we confront these hurts with grace? In Christ, we can be reconciled together. And in Christ, we're not two warring nations that we have to come up with this careful peace, split up the spoils. In Christ, we're family And we can trust Christ in each other. That this humility of going to a brother or a sister you've hurt and saying, I'm sorry I've hurt you, is a magnet for the Spirit of God. We're going to read the final verses, verse 20 to 22. And the next slide. i right, the next one. There we go. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now we have peace. What do we get to be? We get to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Perfect. We get to be sons and daughters of a new kingdom. Incredible. But this is saying here we get to be built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? We're not just at peace with one another, we're now where God resides. Paul uses this image of foundations a bit differently to other ones he uses. He talks about how the teachings of apostles and prophets are the basis of our understanding of our relationship with God. And then he calls Christ the cornerstone. A cornerstone was a large rock that you'd place down first. And the cornerstone's job was to set set every single stone that came after it. It was the plumb line, you could call it. Its other job was to bind these stones together, particularly two walls together. And Paul's using this image here for the Jews and Gentiles. But Paul's calls us living stones being built together into the dwelling place for God. And Christ is truly that first stone laid in that pattern. And if we stick close to him, then we can be built into God's dwelling place. You and me are bound together by the continual life of Christ in each of us. Why? So we can be a dwelling place for God and a demonstration of God's grace, forgiveness, goodness, and power on earth. Do you agree? Let's summarise. Before we knew Christ, we were separated, alienated, and behind a wall. All of us, yeah? But because of Christ's sacrifice, a barrier was removed, and now we have access to the promises and access to be in his household. We just need to come, come and know Christ. There does remain one wall, which I haven't mentioned so far. And that is a divide between the church and the rest of the world. As a church, we are set apart, made holy, made righteous, and a dwelling place for God. That is special, and that is something protected by God. But this wall built around, it is not a wall of hostility. The wall in the temple said, do not enter or you'll surely die. But the wall around His church, it is written, come all who are weary. This is a place where there is no death. This is a place of life, and of life to its fullness. And if you want to know peace, and if you want to know reconciliation, the dwelling place of God, his church, that's all of us built together, not this building, is the place for you to be. These verses give us more than a gateway and a promise into eternity, but they give us a part to play. We become living stones built together as a dwelling place. So let's come back to what we were talking about earlier. If we're the place where God dwells, why have we got divisions in our household? Why have we got walls built between us? I think God wants to confront this disunity with grace and powerful repentance and reconciliation that only Christ can do. Because he became our peace. It's not enough just to say sorry. It's not enough to agree some peace terms. We have confidence that because of Christ's work on the cross, that this peace that we long for can be achieved because of what he did. But we have a part to play in that. By humbly coming to one another and repenting. Today or this week, why not go to someone you've wronged or hurt? Is this too big a challenge? And seek to talk about it in a real way, not running from responsibility, not a casual sorry and see ya, but apologise and seek to be reconciled. If you think that might be difficult, a practical idea would be to tell someone you trust and a friend that you plan to be reconciled with this person and you'd like their help to follow through on that. And you'd like them to ask you maybe later, oh, did you say, did you talk to that person? Now, the complicated reality of humanity is that it's probable the hurts are both ways, aren't they? So let's trust Christ, that Christ will do his work to make peace between us. Our fear of rejection and shame are far weaker than the power of God to make his community and family walk together in peace. I just think for some of us, we haven't yet experienced that grace, that real grace of God to reconcile us with the people next to us. And I want to encourage you with the stories of South Africa and the stories of the people around us, that hurts hurts between people can be mended by the power of Christ. Secondly, you might be sat there thinking, I've been hurt. It's all well and good saying that people need to go and say sorry to other people, but I'm the victim and I'm the person who needs someone to say sorry to me. And... The truth is, is that today someone might not come up to you and seek to reconcile with you. But let me encourage you to learn from Christ, who before we repented, before we decided to follow after him, before we decided to live a life like him, he forgave us. It's a difficult reality, but if we can forgive people who hurt us unconditionally, before they repent, we're living like Christ. Desmond Tutu recounts from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a daughter whose father was murdered in hate crime. She told the details of the thing that happened and no one had stepped forward to take responsibility. And she stood before the board and said, it's really difficult for us because we want to forgive and we don't know who to forgive. Isn't that incredible? So let us forgive before Christ's before repentance even comes our way. And if you find the issue of repentance difficult, or you think these hurts are too big to forgive, then uh, that's a whole other preach, isn't there? Uh, but there's some books you can read. Uh, one we have at the back of the room is Why Forgive. Looks like this. The second one I've been reading is by Desmond Tutu called The Book of Forgiveness, in which he gives you actual practical ideas and discussions and journal ideas and things to do to help you work through this hurt. Speaking from a position of experience of seeing a nation forgive one another for atrocities. If you're scared you might not get grace from the person you've hurt, know that Christ is at work when people humble themselves. A risk that Christ's power is stronger than our fear. And perhaps your act of reconciliation will change your life as well as the person you reconcile with. I'm going to hand back to uh, Tim and the guys now to wrap up and respond in any way that you guys feel. But shall I just pray for us? Father, we thank you that you did a work on the cross that has ended the division between us, that now we can live at peace with one another. We can live at peace with people far different from us, people with different political ideas, people with different uh, family backgrounds, people from different cultures. We can live at peace with people who have hurt us, with people that are responsible for our suffering. And through Christ who became our peace, we can really live that peace with that person and have more than enmity and more than hostility and not be far away from our brothers and sisters. But instead, Lord, because of you, we can be joined together again. In your name. Amen.